0: podcast by Texas Guadalupe. um, the UT University of Texas Hyperloop team. I'm Gavin Nader. I'm the head of business and I'm a senior studying economics.
1: I'm your other co-host David Spittler. I'm the head of engineering for Texas Guadalupe and I'm currently pursuing my master's in mechanical engineering at UT.
0: So today we have a really fun episode. It's one of our first. Um, One of our advisors is joining us, Michael McDaniel. Michael is an award-winning designer, team builder, and a top-level problem solver, and just for the flex, he is followed by Barack Obama on Twitter. How you doing, Michael?
2: <laughs> Good, guys. How are y'all? Doing well. Doing great.
0: Got past the snow day, and now
2: we're cruising. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Didn't um, really yeah. affect me, though, in the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, true. Everyone's working for home, anyways.
0: Um, to yeah. start, um, can we just go back to how we met? and
2: kind of how you got involved with us and why you're sitting Hyperloop. Oh, sure. Um, I've always been interested in any kind of transportation, um, especially ways to get people around faster, better, and cheaper. So um, I've always followed Hyperloop and was looking for an excuse for it. But um, I actually met the team um, doing a talk uh, on uh, commercial kind of off-world construction uh, for commercial applications. Um, And it was probably about two months before I joined Icon even uh so i met some of the guys uh they did a talk on hyperloop i did a talk on um how to build off world and then i think uh, there was a couple other folks here hypergiant and a few other folks that spoke as well on uh space but it was kind of boring compared to construction <laughs> yeah.
0: so then did you just start talking with sharia um about the team how did that sort of happen
2: yeah, no, I was asking, uh, particularly uh, your levitation system. Uh, it's pretty unique um, out of all the student teams. Uh, so when they were actually talking about using um, um, the air bearings for a uh, levitation system, I just thought it was pretty fascinating uh, since your Hyperloop runs in a partial vacuum. So um started asking him about that. But since Shari's business, uh, he was like, uh, I have some people you can talk to about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, It's classic. classic business side.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: And I actually saw one of your tweets from like 2016. You were met, you were tweeting about the the student competition. So have you been sort of mm-hmm. following it since then?
2: Yeah, yeah, I have actually. Um, and it's it's something that I've it's technology I've always followed since uh, you know Musk released the white papers. Actually when I actually went out and read the white paper and thumbed through it just to see um, kind of what he had come up with. Because at the time, I believe it was right after um, I stopped working on the wire um uh because i was doing my own startup at the time instead um as i think that was right about the time maybe he released the white papers or so i forget when the the white papers are actually released may have been earlier than that um anyway i was kind of curious in it because uh hyperloop seems to be a fantastic uh regional um if not uh also national kind of like transit system uh if you ran lines that long uh but particularly regionally it seems to have like a lot of applications which would dovetail perfectly with, uh, you know, a, a local transportation circulator like the wire concept. So I was kind of thinking wire local around Austin, and then you hit your Hyperloop to go down to, um, you know, South Padre to watch a rocket launcher, up to Dallas or over to Houston. So, yeah, at least from a Texas, you know, a very Texas-centered perspective. <laughs> yeah, for
1: sure. Yeah, I heard you mention the wire a couple of times there. Do you want to kind of go into what that is and? Um, just kind of the idea and the concept there.
2: Oh, sure. If I can even remember uh, all the details about it now. Um, yeah, the wire actually, um, was a, an urban, an urban cable system, um, essentially, uh, overhead gondolas, uh, from ski lifts that we were uh, adapting as a mass transit, uh, option for the city of Boston. Um, and it was a lot of fun trying to, um, we had a, a grassroots efforts. We kind of mounted, um, with uh, some designers from Frog. It started actually uh, when I was a principal or senior, sorry, principal designer at Frog uh, started uh, this project, trying to cross train a lot of the design staff um, and creatives at Frog. Uh, We were running the kind of cross train because I'm a weirdo that does a little bit of everything. So um, we were taking interaction designers and teaching them visual design, visual designers teaching on design research, Uh, researchers like turn around and showing them this is what it means to do interaction design. and a great a great way to kind of cross train um, all these different disciplines was to um, think about a transit, uh, a transit problem. Um, so we just started originally looking at uh, bus systems, evaluating Cap Metro, which was kind of cheating for me. That's why I was using it as a teaching project. Cause I just worked on um, a lot of the Cap Metro projects at the job I had before Frog um, to work on the Metro rail and a lot of the, the local transit systems here. Um, and I think they were still using a very, mutated form of one of my maps on, on the bus system still um, so I had, a, I had a lot of knowledge, insider knowledge on Cap Metro so I thought that would be a good safe spot uh, but what was surprising is we got out and did the research and our research essentially came back that the best circulation system for Austin would be flying cars um, and it was like well how can you actually do flying cars with modern technology um, and one of the crazy technologists that uh, used to be at Prague um, who's now over at Argo Uh, suggests he was like well ski lifts he's like you know I I thought it was kind of silly but we actually threw it in the mix and then started crunching numbers on it and then once we actually started running uh, the math on it uh, we're like whoa why aren't people using this and it turns out they are they use um, uh, gondolas like you would use at a ski resort um, in a lot of parts of uh, Central and South America a few spots in Europe uh, but it really hasn't taken off yet people have talked about it Um, but when you look at all the modes of transit, um, it's by far the cheapest one you can put in, um, it's runs depends on how frequently you put a station, your ground stations are going to be about $3 million in hardware to bolt down. Um, so you can essentially say that's your per mile cost because everything else is just a tower and a cable. Um, so super energy efficient, super green, um, super quiet, um, and doesn't really take away from local surface level real estate. And that's the biggest problem with light rail. Um. I've never been a big proponent of light rail. I love trains. Um, but never really thought light rail is a great urban circulator solution because it, it takes away uh, essentially real estate on uh, the ground level, which is the most competitive real estate vehicles generally run on that unless they're running in a tunnel or an overpass above it. Right. But that's pretty rare and that's pretty limited burst, not long distances. Um, unless you're talking about an elevated interstate. Um, so when you start looking at all the different modes of transit, um, and how can you, You squeeze the most out of the 3D volume that is an urban center or city. Um, Going down like the boring companies uh, wanting to do, or potentially even with Hyperloop, right? Burying Hyperloop instead of having above ground tunnels or tubes. Um, That would be great, and it's fine. But uh, when you look at boring, um, it's really expensive. Subways are about $450 million a mile um, is where they start at. Um, so, and particularly below Austin with all their limestone caves and stuff and mm-hmm. springs and caverns uh, when they just extended Mopac, um, last summer, they punched through an unknown cave system, uh, at Slaughter Lane, um, and had to like stop work on it for months to cap it off. Um, so it's, it's a lot of things that digging in Austin, you just don't want to really dig. Um, but you can go up, you can do a flying car, uh, and you can do it really, really, really cheap, like a fraction of cost of, uh, essentially urban rail.
1: So what does a gondola so system the <laughs> So what does like a gondola system look like in a city like Austin? Like where are you putting where are you putting the lines? How are you getting people in the gondolas? Oh
0: yeah, yeah it looks like um, Evan has some pictures here. I have a couple of photos. This <laughs> oh, one, wow. This some old school there. I just imagine like flying over ACL. <laughs> like you get the,
2: yeah, so we actually well, we did uh, I mean, we did serious design research on this and um, a lot of business uh, research on this, uh, actually. Um, where we ended up, we ended up with um, a master plan, I believe, that had, I want to say it was five, five wire lines, um, if I remember right. Um, the first line that we would actually terminate at Dilker Park would go, it would cross the river because uh, that's one of the cool things about cable. Um, it's a cable, so there's no infrastructure or additional cost to cross a geographic barrier like a river. Um, where if you're going to build a, um, a bridge over, um, uh, what are they calling it now? It's not Town Lake anymore, Lady Bird Lake. Um, you build a bridge over that, that's $96 million uh, to build a bridge. Um, Congress, you can't, uh, you can't expand the Congress Bridge in Austin because it's uh, a protected ecosystem for the bats. You can't expand uh, Lamar Boulevard because it's a historical bridge. Uh, it's a historical site. So you can't touch that. So you're left with First Street or you have to go to Mopacker 35 uh, or put in a whole new bridge and a whole new bridge is 93 to $96 million. Uh, cable just goes over it. Uh, it's no additional cost. You just span a cable over, put a tower on each side and you're done. Um, so what we were doing with uh, the wire one line started at the airport. Uh, it came over, it crossed. Um, we had a 3d designed route entrance into the city. So um, you actually leave the airport. We kind of keep it low and skim the ground there um, because you're at an airport and keep you out of the airspace um but once you cross the highway we would actually have it where it peaks up and then we come in and out of the tree line uh coming into the lake so you actually get peaks of the Austin skyline and you get to stay down in the green belts um come along the golf course there and then you cross the river and it kind of hugs the river Um, it came into the convention center and then uh wire one went from the convention center over to Zilker Park um kind of running down the lake and then crossing over Uh, so, we thought that line would be pretty epic first line because you could take that and come into South by Southwest, ACL, um, just about every event could be serviced with that and out to the airport um, and feeds right into downtown. Um, we're like, that would be a good foundational line. And then we had, of course, uh, North and West um, lines. So, if you look at where our roadways have kind of built up, um, those clogged arteries have kind of grown in our city. Uh, it's always North and South circulators um so you have mopac and 35 that kind of frame the city um so we had some lines that went north and south of course um uh because the like london austin is a is weird kind of geographically where we're split with a river a um, mm. geographic barrier um so crossing that is um it's a huge bottleneck i know when i used to work downtown uh i could add 20 minutes to my commute um just to cross the river um in rush hour and that that's no fun Um, but the wire would allow us to do all of that, um, super cheap. Um, we even had subscription models where we'd looked at the business models on it. Um, it would actually work as a private company. Um, it just required a hundred million dollar startup capital. And I was like, I didn't think I could raise that. So, um, I tried to save the world a different way. (laughs) Fair enough.
0: (laughs) One thing I found really interesting about the wire is that in your talk on YouTube, you mentioned like it's a much better way to be introduced to the city. Uh, which is something that I really hadn't thought about. And that made me think about like flying into a city for the first time. It's like one of the coolest experiences, like looking down, seeing like everything. Yeah, um, so
2: That's just, like, one of the coolest things about the wire. Um, Barcelona, Barcelona, Spain actually has an extension of their subway line uh, that, it transitions you can come out of the subway you go up what's called a funicular, which is just like a car pulled up a steep slope on train tracks and then you try, you swap from the funicular over to an actual gondola system and go all the way up to the the mountainsides in barcelona where the uh, olympic village was uh, but what's really cool is um, riding up it's just quiet and you're just kind of cruising along but you're you're constantly gaining elevation and you're just getting a bigger and bigger um, kind of vantage point for the entire city that Kind of sits at the base of the mountains uh, below you so it's it's really elegant um and that's something that public transit is not really synonymous with right is elegance um mm-hmm. or experience um i mean when you think of experience and public transit everyone's mind always goes to the new york subway system and you know thinking rats or you know um all kinds of it's dirty bodily fluids um, yeah 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 i you know?
0: like you would each have your own private pod
2: which is like yeah. underrated. Um, that was underrated um we actually later crunched the math the the gondolas would have to be a little larger um, mm-hmm. but not big We're talking like ten person gondolas instead of four, but uh, you could still run the four person gondolas it just depends on the volume that a line would have to have um, mm-hmm. and that was one thing the rail lobbyist um, cat Metro used to even in, in some of the the transit meetings is it with a joke about the wire every time. Um, uh, but that was one of the things that they had always hit us with. I was like, "Well, you can you can't actually move that much capacity with it." And I was like, "It moves 5,000 people per hour in each direction. That's that's a lot of people. You know, that's 5,000 cars an hour off the highway." I was like, "That makes a dent." Yeah. So
1: you it's can't move Just place that many
2: with a bus. So.
1: <laughs> yeah. So how how far away can you have the posts between between uh the the line there?
2: Depends on the size of the post.
1: Did y'all look? Did y'all no, like try to optimize yeah, for like a maximum?
2: Uh, no, but the, if you look at um, ski lifts, so um, up at uh, was it Whistler, maybe, um, or maybe in British, yeah, I think in uh, British Columbia, there's actually a, a cableway that spans peak to peak, and I want to say that maybe two miles. Uh, oh wow! Between your your limits, um, I'm probably totally wrong on that. You, somebody can Google fact check me on that one. Um, but uh, it's, Jamie, pull that it's, up. A, it's a big span. Yeah, it goes from peak to peak. So it's a big span. Um, so you can span stuff as long as um, you can build a big enough tower to support it, essentially, your only distance limits on um, gondolas as they are right now. Um, that's generally uh, the length of the cable, you can only go about 13 miles, because um, you have to double that length, um, essentially for your cable running on a wheel. And there's just at some point, you get too big of a wheel of cable um, to be manageable. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I that's what you really want, your only physical limitation.
0: I want to rewind just a little bit. That? I can see that yeah. you have your electric bike there. Um, and I have just more of a general question. Like you seem to be a very crafty oh, sure. and like have a lot of workshop experience. Is that something that you got like from your parents growing up, or where did that where did that come from?
2: Uh no, uh, my parents. Uh, my mother's a painter. Um, so she taught me to draw when I was, um, I think, two or three. Um, oh, wow. drawing stick cats and stuff to keep me quiet. I think. Um, but she's a painter, so I kind of learned. I've always appreciated art and have been painting and drawing since I was, since I can remember, really. Um, uh, my dad was a uh, was just a full-out businessman. I mean, he owned a trucking company, so. Um, uh, it was a lot of time for me as a kid was in sawmules, uh being horrified by foremen who like to take you from the catwalks and show you, you know, a 20 foot diameter saw blade spinning at, you know, 6,000 RPM and ask you, it's like, hey, you know what happens when your arm gets caught in that? <laughs>
0: you know? yeah. so, the wheel death. So
2: I guess yeah. I, maybe that out of fear, it bred a lot of interest in machinery to me. But um, you know, I've always, um, I've drawn um, Martian cities, moon villages trains of the future, any kinds of forms of transit and stuff since, I mean, since I was a kid, so. Um, but you've always been interested
0: in, in like space as well.
2: Oh yeah, no, I, I was, my plan in high school when I first got my driver's license was um, I was going to go in the air force, which I'm not a, a military person, but I was going to go in the air force because I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And then I was going to be an astronaut mm-hmm. um, because that's the only profession anybody really tells you about for space when you're a kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially um, before this kind of new era in space that we're in now, uh, the new space economy. We have commercial interest, and there's new jobs, new types of jobs needed there too. Um, But as a kid, I mean, you could hope you could get to be an astronaut for the government and the government would strap you to something really expensive and big and loud and goes really fast and fire you off the planet. You know, that was your your only hope.
0: Give you a nice (laughs) nice Corvette.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the Apollo, maybe. Um, no, I've always been, uh, I've always loved space. I watched every shuttle launch when I was a kid, went to space camp as soon as I was old enough. Um, just always have been, I've been a nerd, so um, I made model rockets. Um, that was probably one of my biggest passions as a kid was, you know, building rockets and blowing them up and losing them and <laughs> all the fun that comes with burnt, catching things on fire with rockets. So, mm-hmm. so I've always tinkered. It's just I don't know. It's who I am, I guess.
1: <laughs> so where was the shift kind of from wanting to ride on a rocket to kind of wanting to be more someone building and kind of behind the scenes type of stuff?
2: Uh, probably just a lack of options and opportunity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, the astronaut thing uh, washed out pretty quick. When I was 16, I had to have glasses. So that kind of without 2020 vision, you can't be a fighter pilot. Um, so I was like, well, that's kind of the end of the road for the, the astronaut career. And that was bef- before I knew that they actually had engineers and stuff that went up, you know, everyone thinks of the, the Chuck Yeager astronaut or not astronauts, but like test pilots and then astronauts. Yeah. And test pilot um, Maverick, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of always probably more alluring to me uh, than anything. Um, and then after that, I was going to be a doctor. Um, so I actually went to college and uh, started in pre-med um, but then uh, I lost my father to cancer at the end of my freshman year in college, um, and after that I was like, "Oh gosh, um, that was kind of, you know, everything in my entire world changed. Safety nets gone. Everything. It's like, okay, well, now what?" Um, and I went to the career aptitude center, the career service center at Mississippi State, um, took a computer aptitude test. Not joking, um, and it came back with the first option being an architect. The second one was uh, graphic design, industrial design, fashion design, like every form of kind of creative profession that they had. Um and then I went through the course catalog for state and they offered graphic design and architecture. Graphic design is less math. That's essentially how I ended up being a designer. Uh <laughs> wow. but it's worked out pretty well for me. So Yeah,
0: for sure. I
1: would definitely say so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I bet your mom was happy about that, right? You went to graphic design.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she's a fine artist. So it's sometimes it's kind of hard to understand um you know, when I'm talking about an invention or something I've built or designed um, or, you know, software you've made or something, it's like, it's kind of hard to explain, explain it sometimes. So right. It's not like a painting or a sculpture, you know, it's, it's much more tangible.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: At times. <laughs>
0: um, and so then what did you do after you graduated? Was that McKinsey or was that Frog?
2: <laughs> yeah, <no>, I <I've- laughs> I forced got my way around through history and all over the place. Um, No, I graduated um, from Mississippi State, and my first job was in California, um, and I did a lot of branding uh, for startups in the first dot com boom. That's how old I am. Um, So I moved out to uh, Silicon Valley, lived out there for a couple years. Um, My wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, finished law school and then um, moved out to California with me. Um, So we had a lot of fun out there uh, until we were. She was homesick and ready to come back home. She's a Texan. So i kind of married into Texas. Um, so she wanted to come home. I was fine with that. So we, we moved to Texas um, and I got a job um, uh, with a design firm that was doing at the time it was before anybody did user experience design or UI designers weren't a thing, um, not in like a formal way that they are now, at least um, design research was, we called it ethnographic based field research because There was no design research. Um, there was no value of design in business. You know, this jobs was actually, you know, making it, um, making the demonstration (laughs) for everyone essentially with this return to Apple at the time. So um so it was a different time, um, but it was also kind of awesome because we got to pioneer a lot of a lot of stuff that is just kind of what's taken for granted now. It's like it's that's just design research. And it's like, there was no classes for this stuff (laughs) back in the day when we did it. So, um, we started out doing, um, what kind of changed, I was doing basically print design and logos and branding, um, kind of iconography, that kind of stuff. Um, because to me at the time, it was like, this is the pinnacle of creativity. Uh, you've got to symbolize something as complex, you know, as this multinational conglomerate company down into one little simple symbol. Um, and I thought that was the end all be all until I started working with, um, in healthcare, um, and particularly with patient experience in healthcare. Um, so we did, a we did a job, um, at that design firm I, I joined in Texas, um, for MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Uh, and that was kind of a special thing for me since I lost my father to cancer. Um, I was like, well, they told him his one only hope would be to go to MD Anderson. He's like, I'm not going to Texas. Um, but went down there working with the folks at MD Anderson um, and all of the volunteers there are all cancer survivors who were told the same thing my father was, but because they went to MD Anderson, um, you know, they were actually alive. So um, worked on a big project there where we actually built the entire patient experience system for them. Um, MD Anderson at the time, I think it expanded to 10 million square feet. And I'm talking like not shopping mall, 10 million square feet. I'm talking that's 10 times the size of Barton Creek mall, but, um, 10 million square feet of like dense, doctor's offices and uh, clinics and labs and steam tunnels. I mean, it's three, we used to call it a 3d hamster. Yeah. 3d hamster cage. The irony being, it's like, kind of like a tumor. It had just, all these buildings had grown together and it spread out and you couldn't tell where one building stopped and started if you were a patient inside. So we designed a whole experience system uh, that would let you quickly navigate 10 million square feet. Uh, in a matter of minutes using some touch screens. And this was way back in the day before they were iPads and stuff. So touch was crazy. Um, we had touch screens um, that actually printed out little receipts. And then we had icon based landmarks throughout the 10 million square feet. So if your doctor's office was near, say, like the aquarium, uh, everything. It would direct you to a fish, um, all the signage wow. and everything. And we had certain hallways designated like interstate highways uh, with special um, paint and carpet and signage. Uh, So when you got on those, it was like being on the interstate where you had your mileage markers and kind of like, here's where my exits are. And uh, it worked tremendously well. Um, But that was the first time where I watched um, doing follow up research after we put the system in. um, I watched a 16 year old oncology patient walk over to a kiosk, you know, that I had designed, um, use this interface that I had designed on the screen, um, grabbed her receipt and looked down at her directions. And then looked at the icons, all of them that design. It was like, picked out her icon for her doctor, looked up in the sign and all the arrows were pointing. And she was like, looked at her parents and she's like, this is fantastic. Come on. And she ran the chemo. Um, and my wife being an attorney used to make jokes. We said, when we first got married, she was like, why are the TV shows about doctors and lawyers and cops? And no shows about designers. Um, and she was like, baby, that's because we deal with life and death. Um so after that experience in MD Anderson, I was like, that's where I realized kind of the power design and how you could apply it in very targeted str- surgical ways. Um, and I actually do what's kind of in the business world they think is like black magic. And I was like, it's not, it's just, it's a specific application of kind of a creative mindset. So, but that kind of changed everything for me. And then from there I went, um, did all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, Invented some housing systems, some automated driving systems. We're going to talk about two thousand three.
0: We're going to talk about the housing system. I think we can do that. We can do that next. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a. Great yeah, that thing was either. one of the crazy <laughs> things.
0: Yeah, so <laughs> like they
2: frog and all kinds of other places. So, um,
0: yeah. So you said that's like two thousand three. That's when Katrina, right? Um, uh, two thousand
2: five is when Katrina hit. Uh, yeah, okay. two thousand five. Yeah.
0: Can you talk about sort of what that meant to you and why you were inspired to create Reaction and, and like your, your vision for
2: that? Yeah, Reaction is still kind of hard to talk about a little bit for me sometimes, because it's still like the, my wife and I joke that it's, it was like the death of a child here for us, um, the way that thing ended up. But um, no, in 2005, uh, Hurricane Katrina hit. And then right after that, two weeks later, we had a second, second punch with another storm. Um, and the thing that, I grew up in the coast. Um, so growing up in hurricanes and the swamp, that was just, that's where I grew up. So um, it's something I knew. Um, and we always joked, even as kids, like when the levees break in New Orleans, you know, it's toast. It was only engineered to a certain storm category. I mean, it wasn't a secret or anything. It's like, was New Orleans still there, you know, after every hurricane. And then Katrina hit um, and the levees broke. Uh, and it, it really, really bothered me because um, the boogeyman for me as a kid, um, every hurricane was always compared to Camille. Hurricane Camille, you know, it was like what all the old folks used to talk about, Hurricane Camille, and, and Katrina came in and was bigger and stronger. Um, but the way we, the way the federal government, when I say we, collective we, it's us as humanity, I guess, um, the way we responded to Katrina was exactly the same way that we had responded to Camille almost 40 years before, um, and that was with travel trailers and it's ad hoc response. And I was like, it just baffled me um, because hurricanes are forecastable. They're the only natural disaster you see coming. And I was like, why? Why are we not prepared for this? Uh and then uh so it's like what what would you need out of this? Um and when you look at a disaster response, you know, you get down the um, you know, your basic human needs, food, water, and shelter. Um and the one that I thought that would be a good one to take off the board for all of humanity was Shelter. Um, so it kind of became an obsession of mine. I used to do a lot of freelance work. Um, so even when I was doing all this kind of experiential design work and um, transit work and, and stuff like that, um, to get kind of my kicks out, I would do a lot of freelance work and uh, at night and on the weekends and stuff, doing uh, logos and just regular kind of design stuff. But I threw all of that aside instead of putting energy into that stuff um it's probably when i first made my first garage workshop actually as an adult um at our old house um and started just trying to make it myself i was like well uh, there's got to be and i drew up like all kinds of different housing things built a bunch of different types of prototypes in our garage um and i was drinking coffee one day and that's where i came up with the exo idea um because the coffee cup stacked um in a big sleeve of them i was like Man, I can move a lot of houses. if would sleeved houses like coffee cups. Um, and then it just kind of became a thing that I worked on. It was a passion project for uh, 10 years. Um, before I finally eventually left frog, um, and had some investors, um, that invested in me. Um, they really believed in it. Um, and tried to make a go of it. So,
0: So yeah, I think you said that, that it, was t- how it t- all got started. I think you said it takes people like 45 days to get those trailers there and uh, i think your, in your videos you said that like they it was forecastable but they didn't really prepare for it and they yeah. ended up going to these lots and buying these trailers for like three times over sticker um and it's just well, like it's, a yeah. efficient way to respond to the-
2: supply mm-hmm. and demand yeah. and everyone always overcharges the government too so yeah. um those travel trailers they were paying you know 120,000 and 90,000 for trailers that you wouldn't pay they were like msrp was about nineteen thousand if you bought it off the lot without haggling right um so it was just kind of a ridiculous waste all around uh there was you know government funds spent on cruise ships and we're gonna put people on cruise ships you know and like now mm-hmm. we're still in a, pand- a global pandemic that's probably really horrifying to a lot of people um, that you would send cruise ships into a disaster area where you have stagnant water and you know disease but you know whatever yeah. uh we spent it on cruise ships we spent it on uh travel trailers hotels people lived in hotels forever no one really remembers that um but you if you got anywhere close to like southern louisiana you didn't have a hotel room like hotel rooms were booked out for um through most of mississippi eastern texas like you because the entire population was displaced and what um you know Disaster response is typically if you, if you study it in school, right? Disaster response officially ends when the tax base recovers. Well, New Orleans still hasn't recovered from Katrina. Um, They permanently displaced over half the city's population, half the tax base. So there's a financial incentive there. um, And that was, that was the whole premise behind reaction was not to make money on anything. um, But it was like, how can we build businesses that last? Um, that have impact that are set up to do something good. Um, but the only way to get people excited and motivated by it to actually invest in it um, was that you have to be profitable. And to be profitable is like, you have to be able to turn out volume. Um, so that's why we were looking at applications like um, pop-up hotels with Hyatt for Coachella and um, lots of different kind of applications for the product. Um, and because of the design, um, and some of the system features for disaster response, it had a lot of other applications. Um, yep. And we had a huge sales pipeline built up. But, you know, when you're a startup, it's cash is king. So, like, if you don't close that that funding round fast, then you're dead. So.
0: so, being like a graphic designer, was this the first, like, material thing, object that you designed?
2: Uh, it wasn't the first one, but it was probably... The first one that had any kind of notoriety to it
0: i did a lot of
2: um um well at the firm i was at before frog um so i was never an industrial designer formally at frog um i was a visual designer and interaction designer and design researcher um which was kind of all three of the creative roles that frog had on staff um but i didn't do they had industrial design uh, and two studios worldwide but um i was never on the industrial design teams there um the place i was at before frog um, I, I worked in what's, it's a hybrid weird field, which is perfect for a weirdo like me. Um, it's called environmental graphic design. Uh, and it's kind of an in between gray area design discipline that's, um, sits between architecture, graphic design, and, um, I guess probably industrial design and with a dash of interior design. I don't know. Uh, whereas, and then that's where I was doing a lot of transportation work. Um, so designing, um, all kinds of transportation systems, um, ways to move passengers through airports um, way to move patients through hospitals, um, how to, how to find buses and trains more efficiently, you know, depending on which public transit system we were working with, Um, how to get business districts, how they can move um, customers, you know, fluidly around, you know, business districts to businesses and stuff. And it all sounds silly, but it's all called wayfinding. Um, And people used to make fun. It's like, so you, you designed signage when I was doing that way back in the day and I was and it was, it was always fun because I took a junior designer one time. We were traveling in, in Chicago and I took some blue tape out. And I was like, here's the power of design. And I walked out in the middle of O'Hare Airport and I put some blue masking tape and just made a line right down the center of the uh, jetway there. And just tore it off and then we went over and sat back down and started drinking coffee. And he was like, what, what's so great about blue tape and design? <laughs> I was like, just watch. And I was like, people thoughtlessly would segregate on the lines. So in the U.S., it, you know, the driver's always on the left side, uh, but everyone, if you're going in that direction, you're going to go on the right side of something. Yeah. If you put down a line, people won't even think about it. They'll just split. It just built um, into your brain so you at that People point. that point. Yeah, it's hardwired, right? So, um, hard-wired. so it's like people started, you know, filing past. You know, they weren't just this mob just crashing through each other. It's like, I was like, that's its a piece of color, a colored line on the floor. Uh, and you can actually move people without them knowing you did it.
0: So. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to show this real quick. This is a <laughs> Oh, an exo?
2: Yeah. Yeah, those are old school ones.
0: I found this really interesting because you talk a lot about, like, culture, and, like, it has to look good, and people have to feel good using it in order to, for it to,
2: like, be adoptable. And, I mean, this thing looks really good. Yeah. And it, it was They were really nice. Good. I spent a lot of nights in them. Yeah. My kids yeah. I, I used to have did. campouts in there when
0: they were little, little. I think, you, I think you mentioned that like your AC went out, and so you went and slept once in your backyard. Yeah, Yeah, the dog <laughs> and I
2: slept in there a couple nights. Um, <laughs> the dog was my co-test pilot. That was actually the first time I ever slept in one, because um, I just finished a rapid prototype. It didn't last the summer, because the materials wow. I used were stupid, and they essentially turned to dust in the Texas heat. But you learned. Yeah.
0: hmm um well i got another great transition when i first saw that it reminded me of like a space habitat um very fancy for sure (laughs) yeah it looks very futuristic and it looks like it should be on the moon um so
2: (laughs) (laughs) that was a 20 year roadmap for reaction
0: uh
2: yeah Uh, yeah yeah that's funny about what i do now so
0: (laughs) yep that brings us to icon um can you talk about like what icon is and
2: how you got involved? Yeah, sure. Um, so Icon is a construction technology company, um, or that's what we say is just a kind of a simplistic handle. Um, but basically, Icon, we, we design, build um, giant construction robotics. Um, they're basically rolling 3D printers, and they print with uh, concrete uh, to print homes. Uh, so uh, Icon can print... Uh, entire homes. Uh, we focused a lot over the past two years on uh, homelessness and affordable housing, um, but we're getting into all kinds of other homes. So these are some homes uh, that you're showing right now. Uh, that's Community First Village. Um, so we printed those homes. were printed all three of those at one time by one printer. So that printer was just rolling back and forth on the slab, printing three houses at a time. Uh, these are actually for um, people that have never had homes. Um, they're chronic homelessness um and actually tim uh uh is the first um first person to live in a 3d printed house like as his permanent residence in the united states yes. and he lives right out in community first village in it yeah that's wow. the Chicone house that was the first one uh that icon did so that was built back with the the very first vulcan one prototype printer uh and that's actually in our head of construction that's in his backyard it's his actually home office so uh When we've been doing calls through the pandemic, he's the only one of us actually calling in from a 3D printed house because this is (laughs) office.
1: (laughs) So, how long does one of these take to print?
2: Uh, You can print our general rule of thumb uh, with the current generation of technology we've got right now out in the field Uh, is about 500 square feet per 24 hours. Um, so the Chacon house was under 500 square feet. Um, so it printed in, in less than a day, um, the community first village and the ones that are on the uh, Apple TV plus show home, uh, down in uh, Nacajuca, Mexico. Those are all small format because they're meant to be, um, affordable housing, um, and kind of affordable price points, but we have printed, um, homes up to 2,500 square feet. Wow. Um, yeah. And that's, what's cool about the robots is like, they never get tired. They just keep printing. So, <laughs>
0: And what material is this? Is this just
2: concrete? Uh, it's a special mix of. Well, it's a special mix of concrete because um, concrete has to do as um, Jason Valerie, our CEO, likes to say, is uh, has to do a lot of black magic uh, because you're having to take a concrete in any weather condition. Um, it's got to be fluid enough to go through, you know, 150 feet of hoses and pipes uh, to get to the nozzle, and then when it comes out that nozzle, it needs to set super fast. Uh, and it needs to stay super strong and it shouldn't crack. Um, if it's raining on it, it shouldn't melt in the rain. If it's too cold, it should still, uh, harden. If it's too hot, it shouldn't get soupy. You know, it's like, it's gotta do some crazy stuff. So, um, we actually have, um, an entire material science team and a material science lab at ICOM. Um, and that is all they do, um, is actually develop some wild, crazy materials. Um, they can make concrete do cementitious materials to be, I guess, technical about it. Uh, do just about anything we could possibly want them to do. Um, and it's, it's been a lot of fun working with the material science team, especially with some of the work I'm doing now. So, how so having you... some friends
1: uh, in construction science, I know a big thing with concrete is like, especially in Texas, um, is the heat and you know, mm-hmm. you're pouring at night and you're keeping it watered down and all this stuff. Is that something that you need to worry about here as well?
2: uh our technology helps us uh and compensates and that uh, and we have our kind of special formulas um that we use for this stuff so it's just you print um, it and it's done yeah uh i mean it's like any concrete right it takes 27 mm-hmm. days to reach fuel cure curing strength but i mean it's load bearing generally in about 24 hours
0: so this doesn't depends mean, on the weather like, conditions. this doesn't amazing. need any frames to help it it just prints on top of itself like a Normal 3D printer.
2: Yeah. That's probably been the, one of the bigger engines, like kind of when you're thinking more civil engineering kind of uh, challenges uh, with 3D printed houses. It's like, that's concrete. So yeah. it's a lot of thermal mass, but it's also a lot of weight. So the foundations have to be a lot stronger. Uh, and in Austin, like foundations are all over the place. So um, you can print like three houses in the same neighborhood and you will maybe. Three different types of foundations required depending on the terrain the house is on. Uh, whether it's in a sandy creek bottom or it's on a limestone rock. Um, so, but these houses are heavy, so you have to compensate for um, that kind of load because you're you're printing an entire house with concrete. Yeah.
0: So, is this is like the printer something that you just roll up like on a semi truck and then? pop it down and it started doing this thing.
2: Oh, it's not even on a semi truck. The, uh, the Vulcans right now, um, they can print 28 feet wide, um, eight and a half feet tall, and infinitely long, essentially, because um, you keep moving them back. So it, our Vulcan printer is a giant gantry robot, um, and it moves back and forth on train tracks, essentially. Um, huh. Some some rails, wide rails. Um, so it's kind of like if you take your desktop 3D printer um, and you take the bed off and you put, instead of a bed, it's... Um, it's on tracks. Um, so that's essentially, I and mean, that's a really dumb way of looking at um, the Vulcan geometry, but that's essentially, a, I'm trying to give you a mental picture of what it looks like. Yeah. There's pictures of it out there everywhere though. So, so I'm giant
0: Before you joined, was Icon, are you looking into getting into space or is that something that you, <laughs> that you brought to the table? No. Um,
2: so um, I got to know Icon. Um, I'm friends with, um, with Jason Baller, the CEO, and then, uh, Evan Loomis, who's one of the co-founders. Um, we've been friends for, um, a while, especially Loomis and I, um, and Jason's a space nerd too. Um, like me, he's just as a, since a kid loves it. Um, he's a nerd too. So, um, you know, nerds read a lot, um, and get into their passions and stuff. So space has always been one of his. So, um, when I've been out, um, At McKenzie, when I was talking commercial space and commercial space opportunities with the new space economy, uh, a lot um, to a lot of people's discomfort, um, Jason was already, he was actually forming LLCs to make space mining companies and stuff and are already thinking there. Um, So he was already thinking it. Um, It just happened to be, uh, see, ICON's only been around for two years. So um, this was, I met, uh, or I joined last year, so in January 2020. Um, but that was the join kind of um, an overall space program um, where ICON is working with NASA on, on Artemis uh, for the lunar base, um, which would be for pan, uh, you know, permanent manned uh, living or uh, human, human occupation, I guess, human settlement of the moon. Um, and yeah, those are some of the shelters. Um, so we had two architectural partners on the project um, that are working with us. And this is probably the first time that um, I think NASA has ever let design lead. Um, so uh, Project Olympus is what we call it. That's our project to develop the moon printer and construction system. So it's more than just a printer because it's a quarter of a million miles away from us on the moon. Um, you can't here on Earth. You know, we have, you know, a print captain who is kind of like the pilot for the uh for the, the Vulcan robot here on our construction sites. And we have a magma captain. Our magma system is our concrete uh, mixing and, um, and uh, kind of pumping system. Um, and we have an operator for that. But on the moon, we can't. So all right. that has to run with a one second latency. Um, and we can't touch it. Um, so Project Olympus is looking at how would we do autonomous construction um, and do it solely with ISRU, um, so in situ resource utilization, um, and this is like one of the fundamental game changing kind of technologies that can use ISRU, or um, are going to be fundamental to the expansion of humanity into space as reusable rockets. Um, reusable rockets drive down our launch cost um, and allow uh, faster travel times. Yeah, <laughs> Starship right there. Um, um, so uh, that, that's key to opening up space, but how do you stay in space is what well, you have to be able to use the resources that are there. And if the universe is infinite, then we have infinite resources. Um, and the moon's no different. People will look at moon dust and we're like, well, how would you do anything with it? And in the past, a lot of people have looked at um, all different kinds of ways you could make something with moon dust. Um, it's, it has some wild properties to it. Um, really crazy science when you actually start looking at what real moon dust does and how it behaves and why it behaves that way um but most people try to mix it with something so it's called a binder so um with concrete um you know you have you have a couple pieces that you you put together you add water and it all mixes together um portland cement uh the actual cement is your binder agent right so it's your it's the thing that sticks all the rocks and sand all together um So people have done, um, there's some companies like AI Space Factory that did, uh, They would mix thermoplastics with it. So like your basic, your 3D printing filament uh, stuff and they would mix it with uh, Martian regulus, which is Martian dirt or uh, lunar regulus, uh, moon dust. Um, And they would get a building material out of that, but it also has the same properties, a lot of the same properties as a binder agent, which is plastic. Um, What we've been doing with Project Olympus is developing pure ISRU technology. So we take nothing but moon dust And it runs through our devices and it comes out as a building material um and so far we've developed a couple of different we've looked at all kinds of stuff so it's been a lot of fun to be able to experiment with just about i think jason likes a joke that we have looked at the entire electromagnetic spectrum (laughs) (laughs) and uh he's pretty much right as we generally have in the lab um But we have two methods and two different types of uh, devices uh, right now in 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 the lab that are that are working really well at benchtop levels. And we've actually taken just moon dust, run them through these devices, and um, generated a building material that is you know four to five times stronger than high strength concrete here on Earth. Um, So that kind of stuff is extremely fun and exciting, and that's where I get the nerd out with the material science team a lot because they get to go and take the samples i produce (laughs) and then try to break them and characterize them and determine what is this and how did it get this way um so it's it's been a lot of fun
0: have you heard of lunar resources yeah it's a company in Houston so I recently uh, heard an interview with one of the guys that's working there and it's something I hadn't thought about before he's like the moon is actually a really good place to like manufacture since you don't have to worry about weathering and it's like basically a clean room And that's like something that you think about. Like you think of the moon as as an exotic place. He's like, it's actually really great because it's a clean room. You don't have to worry about oxidation. There's no rain. I was like, wow.
2: Yeah. There's no (laughs) oxidation, which can be a good or bad thing, depending on what you're trying to do. Right. Um, I mean, there's certain like types of heating elements and stuff that actually need oxygen and they need oxidation as a process to actually function. Um, uh so it's a lot of interesting characteristics like the moon is really cool um i'm all for moon and mars um but mars is way easier a lot harder to get to way easier to build on than the moon the moon is a whole different ball game if you're talking about moon earth and mars um the moon is the only one that is in a hard back um so water supplements you can't mix concretes on the moon surface because the water just instantly is gone, right. um, so you can't mix anything. Um, and if you can't mix anything, then it's like okay. Well, what can you can you add something to it? Um, can you run it through a thermal process? You know, it's like how can what can you actually do with just this powdery stuff? Because when you actually look at uh, lunar regolith, it is super super fine, like yeah. two hundred and fifty microns. Like it's baby powder, but finer. Um, and it's a the real stuff is abrasive because there is no there's no atmosphere. There's no wind, rain, water to smooth it off. Like sand grounds on the beach. So all of these are kind of like just couple birds. They're all super sharp and they stick to everything. Um, and that's what people don't realize is like, well, we've already been the moon. I was like, we went to the moon. We've had six camping trips to the moon. The moon is this has the landmass of North America. So do you really think you've seen all of North America with six camping trips? Um, And even the longer Apollo missions that stay three days, um, a lunar day is 14 Earth days um, because of the rotation and its orbit. So you have 14 days of light. All the Apollo missions were essentially timed on purpose to land at essentially high noon on the moon. And the longest we stayed after three days, we essentially left at 3 p.m. (laughs) So we have never seen in person a lot of the lunar weather. Um, And that's something that very poorly um misunderstood um about the moon because we just simply don't know because we we haven't observed it and haven't been able to observe it until we go back
1: nope. so um, what does it take to get a lunar 3d printer is this something that just a single uh payload could get there or how, how many trips would it take to get all the parts just
2: one I've um one. so we just depends on which launch vehicle you're looking at um, starship was not was never intended to go to the moon uh the lunar variant of it um is interesting but it's not a cargo it's not a lunar cargo variant of it
0: it's kind of of fun stuff in the moon
2: yeah yeah but uh, the starship could do it Uh, um the starship will require landing pads though um to be there if you're going to land try to do a descent with raptor engines firing um, and that's one thing that people don't really realize one of the fun things about the moon um, since it's covered with a very 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 fine powder across the whole surface um, and it's in a vacuum uh, rocket exhaust doesn't go straight down like it does here on earth because you have an atmosphere holding the rocket exhaust down it expands outwards, uh, and when that gas expands outward it takes everything else with it and pushes it as fast as it's expanding outward. So if you have a rocket engine coming down with 10,000 pounds of thrust, that thrust is pushing all that dust out. So even the little Apollo, the Apollo limbs uh, had about 10,000 pounds of thrust on descent. Um, they actually sent dust orbital. So Phil metzger um, has some great talks and some um, some great videos, uh, kind of explaining some of the simulations and stuff that they've run on this, but. Uh, The Apollo landers actually take moon dust orbital around the moon uh, into orbit and it comes back in at at hypersonic speed. So you have essentially a dust storm coming in (laughs) that fast. Um, So without landing pads and ways to control that um, exhaust, there have been some studies and there is concern that um, with enough commercial traffic on the moon, we essentially loot the moon (laughs) where we have a haze around the moon from us just taking up so much moon dust from activity. And you ha- thats what would happen if you didn't have landing pads there. Um, but that's all a digression off of Starship. Um, Starship is awesome. Um, uh, our system will fit in Starship. It, of course, will fit on um, uh, New Glenn um, atop a Blue Moon lander. Uh, the way we currently have it—I mean, it's so early on, right? Because um, we're not going to fly for a couple years now. Um, so we have a lot of rapid prototyping stuff. But in its current form, as we, as we have uh, been working on it so far. Um, we could get two of those on top of a blue moon lander inside of a new Glenn. Um, wow. and then that would give us one shot. You'd have two printers, um, two printers on, the surface on, up there. on
0: top of the lander.
2: Yeah. Cause wow. the deck. cause, um, when you're looking at the diameter of new Glenn, it's, uh, smaller than a starship. So starship's about what, 30 feet. Um, yeah. new Glenn's around 22 feet. Um, so when you look at the inside of the fairing, uh, you essentially have a 20 foot deck, um, and then about what 45 55 feet uh in the payload bearing so um, the olympus designs that we have um that we currently have um are a very what we call a boom tower um so it's a very vertical arrangement um so but it's very much like a construction crane uh, that you would see um any kind of standard construction crane you see all over downtown austin right now uh, the difference being is our our jib our jib arm so Think of this is your construction tower and this is your jib arm um, that moves and it has your dolly, it goes back and forth and lifts your stuff. Um, the way Olympus is currently conceived is it's a tower like that, but our jib arm actually folds um, so it can fold up vertical. So when it's all vertical and packaged up, two Olympus sprinters in theory could fit on top of a, blue, a single Blue Moon Lander. Uh, the bigger Blue Moon Lander, the HLS size ones, which have a 10 metric ton capacity. Um, so the printers would be riding down, so in this scenario, if they rode down on Blue Moon, uh, they, would, they would land there, um, they'd be offloaded off of Blue Moon, and then uh, they essentially have to drive themselves to their construction site, which should be near the lander, hopefully. Um, and then they're um, they essentially fed by excavators. So um, NASA's Razor is a great example of a, um, a, a low gravity excavator design. Um, So something like a razor um, or a different type of excavator would essentially just feed Olympus moon dust and it would take that moon dust and convert it into um, essentially like an ultra high strength ceramic. Um, And that's what the structure would be printed out of. Wow.
0: Um, And then I don't know if you can talk about this, but where would you get your power from?
2: Uh, That's the fun part. So NASA is telling everyone uh, looking at going to the moon in uh, cislunar space, Commercially over the next decade, uh, not to worry about power. Power will be there. Um, and so, That's power is an interesting and communication. policy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <We thought laughs> Don't worry random. about it, it's there. <laughs> um, yeah. So, we've been sizing our system. Um, our system will actually could run on a, uh, some very large battery packs that you're recharging with solar. Um, it wouldn't print that fast because you would be power limited. Um, uh, ideally, um, RTG or modified rtgs um, would be what you would want to use for power uh, for something that could be self-contained and mobile um, that would have the power demands of a full olympus system uh, because they the devices and technology we have right now are very very cool um, but they are power hungry i mean we're not talking like they're not crazy something like out of a comic book where you know the city all the city lights dim when we turn it on or anything but Um, it is definitely something, uh, you know, it's, it's bigger than a flashlight. So, uh, in space that, that requires a lot of thought and and calculations on your power.
1: So I noticed on the earth 3d printed houses, obviously you start with a foundation already there and then you print off of that. Um, but obviously on the moon, that's not a luxury that you get. Um, so how did you kind of have to change the design or change your strategy, uh, to to be able to work around that?
2: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um. So what's really awesome is this is probably, like I was mentioning earlier, uh, the first time that NASA's had designers in from the get-go. So um, Icon, when we came in um, to start working on uh, concepts for Project Olympus, uh, we didn't want to build the technology like the printer in a vacuum. Uh, We would rather have it in kind of more of a a closed creative loop um, for lack of a more graceful term. So um, we wanted the printer to be able to have the capabilities to produce the architecture that humans would actually need to live on the moon um, so you can do a chicken and egg scenario with it or you can take some guesses or what we did is we brought in um search uh which is uh was one of the winners of uh, that's one of the that's a mars ice house by search that's on the screen right now um, so search was one of the winners of uh, mars centennial challenge um for 3d printed habitats um and their ice house and then they had a, a lighter one called the x house um that both won awards in that competition. Um, ICON actually entered that competition with the Colorado School of Mines uh, and ended up placing as one of the finalists uh, in it, um, mostly on uh, a lot of the student work, um, which one of the students is now working at ICON. Um, So, uh, yeah, Uh, it just depends on uh, that structure. So we brought in the architects early, Um, both Big and Search um, did entire lunar complexes and design so we could look at the entire archetypes of all the types of structures that we could potentially need to make um, from pressurized halves to unpressurized structures. So like equipment garages and loading, loading docks, that kind of thing, Uh, protective berms, launch pads, uh, landing pads, roadways, um, just foundational things like slabs. So you can mount a solar array on top of it, you know, (laughs) or other Mm -hmm. equipment. So I looked at the entire thing. So it was a, From the very get-go, the robotics design on Olympus, uh, the technology development to actually make the building materials and the building science, it was working in lockstep with the architects who were coming in and looking and like, okay, if we're serious about building on the moon, what does that look like? And the designs that Big um, in particular came up with for the habitat, they look nothing like the space station um, because they're actually intended to have a human in the loop, like uh, consider the human that's actually living in this space. And it ends up being something that's very graceful. um, And the design was informed. It can be completely 3D printed. um, And 3D printed from moon dust, we scoop up off the ground. Um, So Olympus was kind of sized to be able to produce that type of architecture. Um, But the the crazy engineering trick that Olympus does or has to do, um, or will do, I guess. uh, Yeah, there's the exterior of the big habitat. is we have to print planar surfaces, so roadways and landing pads, but it also has the print volumetric structures, which is like this Big Hub. And Big did a lot of work um, to optimize their design. So um, the crazy kind of faceted face are actually 3D printed rib structures that overlap. So kind of like flying buttresses on a cathedral. Um, So that gives us really fast print times. And then uh, you take Olympus actually dumps um, unprocessed moon dust, just raw moon dust, into these kind of pockets on the ribs. um, And that builds up radiation shielding. Um, mm. So that gives us a lot more thermal mass and radiation shielding and micrometeorite meteorite protection, um, because the moon's pretty pretty cratered up. It gets hit all the time, so uh, it still gets hit a lot. Um, not as much as the great bombardment that made a lot of the craters we look at on the moon, the big ones, um, yeah. but it gets it gets hammered. Um, so uh, that was something in particular with the um, the habs that we had to look at, um, and Big did a lot of other very very clever and smart things in it with water storage, sort of water stored above um the crew the crew beds sleeping quarters um that's where all the water storage is um just to give you another layer of radiation protection because uh, on average that's where you're going to have the most amount of your time in anyone's space inside of a structure um is when you're sleeping um so it's like some lots of like i mean there's just a ton of it in there Uh, very very clever ideas uh, and concepts that were that were in that but they were all practical and buildable um and then we were doing the the robotics has been uh you can see on olympus way off in the background on on that bottom big one um but uh olympus is kind of sized and designed to be able to print these halves um that big had come up with and those landing pads that search had come up with and then uh the roadways and everything else uh so it's supposed to be an all-in-one construction system which is kind of crazy um but what's really fascinating people were like well how does that reconcile all this crazy moon work what is this why even bother when you're trying to solve you know the global housing crisis here on earth um and you know fix housing um and for me it's all about the isru um so the technology that we actually have working at least at in lab scale right now um means that if we did if we bring isru back to earth um we could go to sub-Saharan Africa, pick up worthless dirt that's on the ground there and print a home with it. Um, anywhere in the U.S., it was like, wherever your printer is, you can pick up whatever you're stand- wherever the printer's standing on and potentially print with it. Um, and that's just a whole different paradigm change. Um, so if you have that coupled with 3D printing, and you're applying that at scale on Earth, and then that's, that's pretty disruptive. Um, way more so than just either one of those technologies on their own. Um, so of course there's military applications. Cause I mean, why wouldn't the military want to kick a printer out the back of a plane and be able to print, you know, <laughs> barricades and defensive, defensive structures or whatever, um, wherever they're going. Um, so it, there's lots of applications to it. Um, but the housing applications for it to me are, are really exciting um, because a lot of the the things I ran into with reaction um, and a lot of the, some of the logistical things that reaction actually solved, but um, another way to deal with it is not even have to bother with it. So if your only logistics are getting a robot to an area and then the robot can just make things in the area once it gets here, then that's it. Now I've got a tool that where we can actually, Let's now let's talk about seriously taking global housing crisis, just housing in general off the board for humanity uh, is not a worry or concern anymore. So these are the kind of technologies that enable that. And there is no one that would fund anybody to figure out how to do that here on earth. Um, it takes going to the moon and going to some crazy extreme environment dealing with a really crazy problem that has some kind of technological breakthroughs where you're like, Oh, well, what if I bring this back home? <laughs> and I was like, well, there's a lots of applications for it. Um, but this makes them a, a fantastic lab. Um, to try those out. Um, and we're really encouraged, like, it's not impossible. We're not talking quantum computing here. This is, it's, it's very hard, but it's, it's doable. It's achievable and achievable fast. Um, we've covered a lot of ground in just one year. So it's, it's exciting.
1: So when do we hope to see houses on the
2: moon? In the 2030s. Sounds pretty good.
1: It's coming fast. Well, the
2: the sci-fi movie, the moon bases that you think about in sci-fi, that's when you'll start <laughs> seeing things that go on scale. I think. Yeah, this but I'm makes an me think too. So, <laughs> sign me up. This makes
1: me think of those old um, pirating video commercials, like, like, "Oh, you wouldn't download a house." Well, maybe now we can. <laughs> you can
2: actually. Icon is working on that right now. You can download a house right now.
1: <laughs> Absolute a, game changer. Not the
2: public. We can, and, and Icon, but everyone will be able to soon. <laughs>
0: oh. Um. Well, I think we've taken. We didn't a, even
2: talk about Hyperloop. <laughs> I know.
0: There's, there's a lot
1: that we can go into here for sure.
0: We haven't talked about like space travel, really. We've we've got a lot to talk about. Um. Yeah.
1: Maybe this means we, we need to ready. have you on again.
0: Yeah, it's been an hour. I think. Yeah. I think we can say that until part two
2: yeah yeah if anybody watches this then yeah
1: yeah i'll re-watch it myself so we'll get at least one view yeah
2: exactly
1: yeah but on the docket for next time definitely we got to talk about the electric motorcycle for sure just yep. space oh yeah the so many right things in space in general right now um but yeah th- I, this was a fantastic yeah. conversation i feel like we covered a ton of ground
2: yeah well, I'm it's always happy stuff. to get nerdy anytime. So, <laughs> And SN, SN9 uh, is going to fly tomorrow, it looks like. so. Hopefully. Yeah,
1: I've hopefully, been keeping uh, tabs be on that, and I really hope so.
2: Yeah, I also want yeah, to talk they about... Yeah, got the Static Fire 2 off today, so... I want mm-hmm. to talk about Rocket
0: Lab with you, too, since that's a whole 3D printing situation, but we'll, we'll have to wait.
2: Oh, yeah, no, Rocket Lab's fascinating, <laughs> I think. Um,
0: yeah, I think they're my favorite. Small
2: favorite. launch provider, though. That's my... I worry about all the small launch providers. Like, I want them to all survive, but
0: yeah and Firefly. There's, just, there's only so yeah. much
2: market you can do yeah. and the big market now is going to be human human-rated vehicles so
0: yeah mm-hmm. and massive payloads
2: and massive payloads yeah yeah blue origin and spacex not the not the fireflies but yeah
0: suborbital blue
2: origin <laughs> yeah yeah or virgin it's like how long does it take y'all to get to orbit man 20
0: years in <laughs> counting
1: one of these days all right guys
0: all right yeah well thank you so much for coming on um, yeah
1: thank you so much, much.